Pray with me. God, you are good, and you are true. Thank you, Jesus, for stirring our hearts that we might know you, for opening our ears that we might hear you, and for giving yourself and your life for us that we might do good works. Amen. Well, this morning, we're going to be looking at um, the verses from the Epistle of James. And in fact, over the next few weeks, we're going to be following most of the framework of James, so we'll have an opportunity to walk through that book together. Um, And it is my privilege to kick off our Ecclesial Expository Expedition, or in plain English, our church's sort of sermon series. Um, so without further ado, let's, let's step into the world of James. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, Ve'achavta et Adonai Elohecha. Bekal levaveka, uv kol nafsheka, uv kol me odeka. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. This command from Moses, called the Shema, from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, is, has served as a, if not the, foundation of Jewish worship for centuries. It addresses the two central subjects of our faith, the identity of God, and the position of humanity to God. With simplicity and beauty, this ancient refrain affirms the inner unity of God, His consistency, and our sole responsibility to love Him with every aspect of our being. This, we know from Jesus Himself, is our first and greatest commandment. Now, why might I be giving you this information? Beautiful as it may be, what does this ancient verse have to do with James and the letter that he wrote to the 12 tribes that have been scattered? Well, for starters, I think that it is especially important when studying James to remember how thoroughly Jewish his Christianity is. We believe that this is the same James who is the brother of Jesus. He is the leader, the first major leader, of the believers in Jerusalem after Jesus ascended. So then it would be very foolish to try to make sense of the wisdom that James offers, and he offers quite a bit, 
without first understanding his own worship context. The Shema helps to bring us to the same foundation that James's own spiritual life sprang from. The Shema is also important because, as we shall see going through this book together, one of James's primary concerns is that while God is one, we people are not. We are double-minded. We're torn. Our hearts, souls, and physical impulses, which ought to always be devoted to loving God, are constantly at war within us. I think if we are careful to listen, we will all hear the Shema being whispered through the words of James all throughout his book. So with that in mind, let's see how James builds on this foundation in these verses from chapter 1. Especially keep your ears open to hear how James uses the central truths to direct us into action for loving God and loving our neighbor. Verses 17 and 18 reflect on the oneness of God through the lens of creation. James says, Every good gift and every perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. I have always loved the image of God as a Father of lights. We used to sing a song about God as the Father of lights at my church when I was a boy, but Chris has told me I'm not allowed to sing up here, so uh, I got you. So uh, you're all spared from my attempt to recall it. Some of the early theologians um, thought that this phrase that James uses is with reference to the spiritual illumination of human enlightenment. God is the Father of lights, has spoken us forth with the word of truth, and so the, uh, the image that James has in mind must be that he is the father of all knowledge and wisdom. And I think that's certainly an accurate depiction. Um, others have thought that James might be referring to God as the creator beyond the sun and the moon. If we go back to the creation narrative and he sets those up on the first day, he is the light beyond all lights. He doesn't go down at night. He doesn't wax and wane like the moon. But he is constant. Either way, James is conveying a creator God that is an infinite, constant, unwavering source of provision. He is the great illuminating capital T truth by which all other truths may be discovered. The Father of lights the Lord is one. And in this oneness, as James continues, God brings us forth by his constant will, by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Through this, James is reminding his audience that the Creator God brought man into the world and set us apart to have a unique relationship with him. Isn't it interesting? that he says we were brought forth by the word of truth. To my recollection, Genesis doesn't recount whether God spoke any words when he breathed life into Adam's nostrils. 
But for James, knowing Jesus to be the fulfillment of human nature and the fulfillment of all God's truth in Scripture, he looks back to see that we were made by the word of truth, that we might be set apart for fellowship with God through Christ. Put another way, because James knew that Jesus was the incarnate word, something that might matter to this congregation, the image of the invisible God as he proclaimed himself through scriptures and through salvation history, James could envision the Father of lights speaking himself into Adam as he established the life of humanity, setting us apart for intimate fellowship with him. Is it not amazing to think that the very first breath of man may have been the Father speaking the name of the Son into our lungs through the wind of the Spirit? the whole of the Trinity dancing in and through us in intimate fellowship. James certainly seems to think that part of the good gift that we have received at creation is an invitation to share in the inner wholeness and holiness of God. This leads him to exhort his audience with some of your favorite verses. I look out. I see a lot of parents here this morning. If I were a betting man, I'd wager that more than half of you have quoted verse 19 to your children at some point. And that is to say nothing of how often wives pray this verse over their husband. However, getting back to how this fits into the logic of James... He commands us to be quick to listen, slow to speak, because that is the nature of our creation. God made us with His voice. We are first and foremost receivers of the Word rather than givers of words. I think we all need to let that sink in a little bit, myself included. We are first and foremost receivers of the word rather than givers of our own words. When we are quick to speak, it means that we have not taken the time to receive true words from God regarding our circumstances. James remind us that our hastiness seldom leads to the righteousness for which we were created. Yet if we would turn aside from the quick tongue of pride, there is healing and salvation for our souls in learning to receive again God's word of truth. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord, is one. Of course, we know as well as James that we cannot stop merely at being hearers. If we have indeed heard the word of truth and have had it implanted in us, to use his word, through the Spirit, then we must walk in the new life that it gives us, right? 
How peculiar would the creation story have been if God breathed life into Adam at the foundation of the world and Adam just laid there. Like, yeah, I'm awake, God, but I'm good. I like the dirt. Not only would that be a terrible narrative, but it would be a horrible inconsistency, wouldn't it? To have life but not act alive is not a possibility within the unity and consistency of God. And that unity and consistency has been breathed into us. As such, James reminds us that we should be very concerned if we find ourselves not acting in line with the gospel that we have received. If we are not doers, if we are not engaging in the work of Christ, if we find ourselves not loving the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our soul, and all of our strength, then we must conclude that we have deceived ourselves. We have not really heard this great law of liberty. We are not free. We are like the person who looks into the mirror but cannot recall what we saw even a second after we've walked away. Unless we get up and walk in fellowship with God, we have not received new life. We have not really heard a thing. Regardless of anything we might say about God, our religion is worthless until we have been moved to act out the love we have for God and our neighbors. Now, some of us may be hearing this word with fear and trembling. We're trying to remember the last time we went to visit a widow or an orphan, or even the last time we did anything out of love for God, rather than being motivated by our own impulses or appetite. I don't think that God needed me to make my coffee this morning, but I sure needed it. Others will be thinking that you've actually done a pretty good job, that you have offered your service to the Lord, and He has motivated you to do so. Wherever you find yourself on that spectrum, let me reassure you that what James is saying is actually very good news. Oftentimes when people read James, they feel that he can be harsh, that he is too caught up with works. He lets the self-righteous people go on thinking that their works have done them some good, and he lets the humble people who are introspective suffer and torment themselves, always asking whether or not they've done enough. This kind of reading led the great reformer Martin Luther to call James an epistle of straw. He, like many others, could not see that behind James's commands to act there is an implicit understanding that none of this action is possible without the loving faithfulness and graciousness of God. James does not expect any of us to be perfectly righteous all the time. What he does expect is for God to be righteous all the time. He also knows that the holiness and the unity of God is now available to us because of the work of Jesus. He knows that when we are receiving the righteousness of Jesus as an implanted word, then the only possible outcome is an explosion of the fruits of the Spirit because God is consistent 
and God has always been a God of life and love. The problem, then, is that even though we are able to receive and be transformed by the oneness of God, we are still broken and divided humans. Even after we have been baptized and begun to walk in the new life that Jesus has won for us on the cross, we are still awaiting the day when we will be fully restored and perfected in the resurrection. This means that we will, there will be times for all of us when we do not act in accordance with what we know to be true. As Jesus told Peter, the Spirit may indeed be willing, but the flesh will be weak. James is not saying that if you find yourself divided and not loving God perfectly, that you are not saved. He is saying that in those moments, you need to go back to the source of your strength. He is saying we need to receive again the implanted word, which is the gracious gift of the unified life of the Son from the Father through the Holy Spirit. It is only when we have received the gift from above that we can turn our hearing into doing. As we continue to walk through James together, I hope you will be able to see his deep yearning for God's people to inherit his divine oneness as a blessing rather than a burden. I hope we will all begin to long for the inner consistency and grow in the discipline of depending on the riches of Jesus to pay our deficits. Yet, for today, my one hope for you is that you will prepare your hearts to receive the body and blood of our Lord as an implanted word. Come up here expecting to receive the oneness of God offered to you as the sustenance of faith and eternal life. Don't try to understand it or control it. You can't wrap your mind around it. Simply prepare your hearts that God wants to give Himself to you if you will receive Him in meekness. As it turns out, it is He who first loved you with all His heart, soul, and strength. And the Lord your God, the Lord, is one. Amen.